which uh, is essentially about faith. Other themes are in there, but that's the overall uh, message that Peter is trying to get across. And it is a commodity that Christ said would be in very, very short supply here at the end time. So anytime we stop and look at the book of James over and over and over again in our lives, uh, it is there to remind us of the trust that we need to have in God through all of the vicissitudes and problems and difficulties of life. God is always there for us. Then Peter spoke of quite a few different things, but hope and urgency, of course, were the primary overall things that Peter talked about. And certainly, we always need hope. It is when people feel hopeless that they get discouraged, frustrated, give up, quit, and so on uh, in any uh, thing in life, not just spiritually, but in any aspect of life. So hope is a very, very important thing. And in fact, Paul said that faith and hope were three of the, or two of the three most important things. So we need those very desperately, especially if we're trying to serve God. Uh, Peter, toward the end of his second book, mentioned that God is not slack concerning his promises, and they will happen, and they will happen on time. Uh, did Peter know by the time he wrote Second Peter 3, that Christ would not return in his lifetime. I think that is a very strong possibility. Paul realized at some point that Christ would not return during his life, that he was going to die. And, of course, Christ had told Peter that he would die, uh, and Peter expected and knew that. So perhaps he was at this point, letting us know that whatever uh, period of time we live in, our life ends, and the lives of those people that Peter was writing to certainly came to an end, and none of them are still around. And now we live here in the end time, which we're very sure of at this point, uh, because God is not slack concerning his promises. Now, did Peter understand the 7,000-year plan of God? Uh, I know Paul certainly did, uh, because he spoke there in Hebrews 4 that went over last week about how we enter into a rest every week in anticipation and as a type of the 7,000 years, the millennial period, uh, that was to come to pass. So Paul understood how a day equals a year and how the weekly cycle, uh, six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh is a Sabbath of rest. Uh, he understood that very thoroughly. So I think Peter must have uh, as well. But here we are, the ones that are coming up on the day of the Lord, coming as a thief in the night, and even we need assurance that this thing is coming to pass on time. I spent quite a little time on that last week, but I don't think it hurts to uh, reiterate it a little more today, that God is on time and He is specific. 
When he says a day is as a thousand years, he means a thousand years. Not ten years short of it or fifteen years after it, but on time. So, Christ was speaking there uh, in Luke 4 in the temple in 27 A.D. and said that it was time at the beginning of his ministry to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and liberty. So it was a jubilee that he was declaring. Uh, and that means that there had been 4,000 years of jubilees before that in order to have 2,000 years of jubilees after that to make a total of 6,000 years exactly. And then the seventh uh, thousand years would begin with a jubilee, proclaiming liberty around the world. So that would mean that 2027, 2,000 years, two days, after Christ declared that in 27 A.D., uh, this would come to an end. Now, he may cut the day of the Lord a little bit short, uh, lest no flesh be saved alive, and that is the only time when uh, all flesh would, of course, be threatened. So he he has reserved uh, that not to make more time, but to cut some short. So if anything, it'll be cut short. Uh, and I think he allowed for that because he gave Satan 6,000 years, just as he did man, and if he cuts Satan's time short, God is very fair, uh, and he's going to turn him loose for a short while at the end of the millennium to again deceive people for a very short period of time. And I suspect that that period of time will equate exactly with how much God cut short the 6,000 years uh, so that Satan has his full opportunity to reign over this earth. At any rate, uh, we're coming up very shortly on 2,000 years, the end of uh, the sixth day of man's experience. And the millennium is not far off. <clears throat> so Peter spoke of that hope and not feeling like maybe this is never going to happen by saying it's going to be on time, that it is going to happen. God is not slack concerning that promise. So faith, hope, and I think it only makes sense that we continue on into John because here is the most important thing to be considered for us. As Paul said, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Again, there will come a time when we don't need faith. Everything that God has said he would do, everything we've trusted him to do, will have happened. There will come a time when we will not need hope because we will be in the kingdom of God and hope for that is no longer necessary. But the thing that will be needed forevermore is the love of God so that we can live together in peace throughout all eternity with those who have accepted and will never rebel from God's way. So John gets into love here, and he was the disciple that Christ apparently had the most affection for, the greatest human love, uh, and godly love along with it. <clears throat> John seemed to have had the type of personality that, that Christ uh, was able to uh, be one with more than anyone else. I mean, you can have a lot of friends, a lot of acquaintances, 
But like uh, David and Jonathan, uh, they were so close that God said that that kind of love on the human plane uh, cannot be equaled, even between a man and a woman. Uh, that doesn't mean that they were odd or homosexual at all, either David and Jonathan or uh, Christ and John. Uh, I think that's quite apparent with David that he was not a homosexual. So people try to make stuff out of that, and it's just not there. It's not there in the context. It's not there in their lives. And, of course, Christ would not uh, be in any kind of relationship like that with John. But they were very, very close. <clears throat> and John, apparently, was a very loving type of individual. I, kind of, I find it interesting, as he opens this first epistle, that he does it without any kind of an introduction, of who he is or whom he is writing to. He just goes directly to Christ himself. He says, that which was from the beginning, that would be Christ, which we have heard, uh, he was a, an ear witness, which we have seen with our eyes, he was also an eyewitness, which we have looked upon, again an eyewitness, and our hands have handled of the word of life. So he had touched Christ, he leaned on his bosom, we find there in the book of John. So he had seen him, he had heard him, and he had felt him. <clears throat> so this is going to be a book primarily about Christ and his father, whom Christ was, of course, very close to. So without prelude, he gets right into this. And he's speaking here of not only himself, but the other apostles who had seen and heard Christ, and so on. Then he says in verse 2, For the life was manifested, and we have seen it. It was manifested by him being here on the earth for 33 and a half years and manifested by his obedience to God and never sinning once in his life. <clears throat> and they had observed him in life. And they also bore witness and show to you that eternal life. So John is writing this epistle to show people who might read it what eternal life is all about, to show it as much as he could in words, uh, what Christ coming to this earth meant, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. So he says, the life I'm going to talk about here is the life of Christ, who had been with the Father, and then came and manifested or appeared with the apostles and the other disciples. Now, most of the people he is writing this to had been converted uh, during the Apostles' ministry, after Christ had returned to his Father. So, he's saying, we were eyewitnesses, we're not, we're not just talking about something we heard, this isn't hearsay, we were there. <clears throat> Verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, declare we to you. So he says, I'm going to give you examples of what I saw and what I heard from Christ's own lips I'm going to deliver to you. Now, it's interesting here that John is putting himself uh, in this letter in a teaching position. He was here to preach Christ, him crucified and resurrected. So, was he teaching these people? Yes, he was. There is a statement a little later on in the book where he says, you have no need that a man teach you. 
Well, in the context, that's what he was doing when he wrote this. So we'll get to the meaning of you have no need that a man teach you a little later on because that's a statement that a lot of people have used out of context, indiscriminately, in an error to say that we don't need a ministry or we don't need teachers. Uh, but I can show you a list of scriptures as long as your arm that show that we do. Uh, <coughs> anyway, is that not what this man John, the apostle, was doing? Uh, so we declare it to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. So I'm teaching you these things, he says, so that you can fellowship with us. What does fellowship mean? It means exchange thoughts, words, communicate, uh, talk about these things, which we're supposed to do. In fact, at the book of, uh, in the book of Malachi, in chapter, into chapter 3, it talks about when he makes up his crowns, he will remember those who talk about these things and talk about him. So, uh, John may have even had that chapter and verse in mind when he uh, said what he said. Because he was very familiar with the Scripture. So he says, Our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Emmanuel the Christ. So he's saying, You're going to learn, so you may fellowship with us, the disciples, but truly, above and beyond that, our fellowship is the Father and the Son. I mean, those are the two that we need to fellowship with the very most. Uh, we can talk about the Father and the Son with each other and about their ways and about their laws and rules and instructions and how to keep them better and what we do about it in Christian living and so on. But ultimately, we need to be going to the Father in prayer through the Son on a regular basis and having fellowship and communication with them. That's truly the source, the purpose of human life is through the Father and the Son to become like them and fellowship with them throughout all eternity as God beings ourselves. So he jumps right on it here. The purpose of man and what we're here to do. These things write we to you that your joy may be full. Well, Joy is one of the fruits of the Spirit of God. And joy can come to us to some degree in this life. We can be joyful that there is a God, that He's created us, that He's put us on this earth with the purpose of being in His kingdom someday. And there is a joy in living with that hope and that desire and that dream in mind. Uh, but when will your joy be full? at the resurrection, at the marriage of the Lamb, when we marry Christ, is when our joy will be filled up to the brim. We may have a certain amount of joy and anticipation and hope and faith now, but it won't be full until the resurrection. So he's referring ahead of time that we might look forward to 100% joy. This then is the message which we have heard of him, and declare to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So he's going to contrast here for a little bit uh, the fact that God is perfect light, 
There's no shadow of turning in him. Uh, complete light. No darkness whatsoever. He has no dark thoughts. He has no dark emotions. Everything about God is light. No darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. Now, we can deceive ourselves that we can walk partially with the world, partially Satan's way, the way of human nature, the way of our lusts and our pride and our vanity and ego, and we can cling to some of those things, but he says, you're lying to yourself. If you allow those things in your life and you're not working hard at expunging them and getting rid of the shadows and the darkness and the things that are not of God, then you're not doing the truth. The truth is, we have to recognize we're not what we ought to be. And then we have to work daily at getting the darkness out. Now, the prince of the power of the air walks in utter darkness. And the world is in almost utter darkness, because they know almost nothing of God. So everything in the world, essentially, is ungodly. And we need to consider that when we move about this planet, wherever we go, that virtually anything you run into, wherever it is, is ungodly. It's darkness. Virtually everything that man does is in darkness because they do not know God and do not have light. That's why the world is heavy on materialism and on greed and on fulfilling the desires, whatever they may be, of the flesh. That is their focus. That is their purpose. That's what they go about doing. That's why you have cheap products at high prices. That's why you have pollution of the earth, is that people are trying to make money and do their thing, and they don't care what happens to the earth, and they don't care what happens to other people as long as they get theirs. So everything out there is polluted. Everything. And we need to be walking very circumspectly whenever we go to town, to cities, wherever there are people and things that people have created. And many of those things you don't have to go to town for. They have them all ready to come into your house and into your ears and your eyes through television, through Internet, through telephones, through all kinds of mass communication gadgets that we have. So it, you can't even be safe in your own home if you're not very, very careful what you allow to be broadcast into the airwaves in your own home. Now, those things are out there in the air all the time. Satan broadcasts evil, and he uses the airwaves. How does TV, how does satellite, how does radio, how does telephone get to you? Through the air, uh, through uh, being broadcast through the air. And then it's turned into, through speakers and technical uh, ways, turned into data that you can see with your eyes and hear with your ears. But it all, almost all of it, has a dark or a satanic origin. We need to be very, very careful what we are willing to take in. 
if we walk in darkness, we lie, and we do not the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. So he says, the purpose here is to fellowship with the Father and the Son, and then we should have fellowship together for what purpose? To strengthen our ties with each other toward a better fellowship and communication with God. Because we were put here as human beings, all flawed, all with human nature, which is contrary to God. And he said, now your nature is to fight and to war and to hate and to despise and to envy and be jealous and all those things. That's your nature. So he said, now you have to defy that nature and you have to get along with each other. You have to defy your very nature, which is darkness and Satanism, and learn to get along. Now, that's a powerful, hard thing to do, <laughs> is to get along with each other. But doesn't Christ say over and over again that he will judge us based on how we deal with one another? Yes, he does. Is he going to judge us with love and patience and mercy and kindness and blessing? Yes. If we show love and kindness, consideration, mercy, and blessing toward others. He says, if you don't, I won't. That's a very, very clear statement he makes. Well, we know you. <laughs> I don't know you. When did you take care of the poor and the hungry and the widow and the needy and, and uh, show love toward fellow human beings who had less than you did? I don't know you. Now, what does he do? Doesn't he take care of those who have greater need than he does? That would be every one of us, wouldn't it? Every one of us here has greater needs than Christ does. We are full of sin. We are full of selfishness. We are full of greed, vanity, jealousy, envy, you name it. Those are us. And we don't have eternal life, which he has. We don't have eternal blessings, which he has. So, yeah, we're poor and needy. <laughs> now, we may have a home to live in and a car to drive and food to eat, but we're very poor and needy when it comes to the spiritual things. We're not walking in total light. We still have some darkness in our minds and our emotions and our heads. We should be fellowshipping one with another and trying to help get those things out not give in to them and make them worse like the world is. So he says, walk in the light like God walks in it. Uh, you should be able to walk through life without being concerned about what, whether God is upset with you or not. Now, we all have concerns that he's upset with us, and that's because we aren't walking totally in the light. And therefore, there are things that we just assume God not see, hear, or know about that we think. It says, in the blood of Emmanuel the Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 
So we're to be walking in the light, yet we still do sin, but we have His blood to forgive us that sin so that we don't have to suffer for it. So we should fellowship to a, together knowing that Christ forgives our sin. Well, if He forgives your sin and my sin, then we shouldn't be worried about each other's sin, should we? No. That sin is between each individual and God Himself. There is no place in Scripture where it says you need to confess your sins to another human being. Now, you may want to from time to time because you may be having a problem with something that you need to overcome and grow in, so you want to enlist some help and some prayer and some advice. Those things are okay. But a confessional as such is never required in the Bible. Never in terms of spiritual sin. Now, I'm very aware of James 5, where he says we are to confess our faults one with another, but there he is talking about physical healing uh, in that context. And he says you need to let somebody know if you're having trouble, and you can be anointed and be prayed for, but we need to pray for each other in faith that God would heal. So, in the context, he's not setting up a confessional booth there where we have to confess all our sins to each other. <laughs> That's not what that context is about. You have to read everything in context. But so many places, he says, we need to confess and make our sins known before God. That's all through the Bible. And that we need to confess and forsake is the way he puts it in one place. Do we retain people's sins? Do we dote on them? Do we dwell on them? Do we talk about them? Do we remember them? No, remember, he had his blood shed for you and for me. And if we have fellowship one with another, uh, we can't let our sins get in the way of that. Now, if I retain three or four or five or eight or ten of your sins, in my mind, and you retain three or four or eight or ten of mine or a hundred in your mind, then we're going to have more trouble getting along, aren't we? Isn't it hard to get along somebody with somebody when you retain uh, feelings about what they've said or done in the past? That's a block. It gets in the way. How can you fellowship together in love if you're remembering somebody else's faults, whether they be true or not true, if you hold them, if they're faults, you shouldn't be having, having those thoughts in the first place. But if they're things that did happen and you know of it for sure, then you shouldn't retain that either. If that person went to God and asked for forgiveness, which they probably did, then what right do you have to dig around in Christ's blood at the base of the stake and retain their sins? Will it be an impediment to fellowship? You bet it will. Why do people hate each other? Because of things that people have done to each other. Or things that they thought were done. Some people get mad and never speak to somebody again all their life because they thought a person may have ignored them or not spoken to them on purpose. 
That happens. That person might not have ignored them on purpose at all. They might have been desperate to get to the bathroom. You know? There could be a thousand reasons you might not have spoken to that person at that particular moment. But we get our little feelings hurt so bad. So it doesn't matter whether something actually happened, or you imagined it happened, or you fantasized that it happened. You shouldn't retain it regardless. We are not to be offended, period. Right? We're not to take offense. And we're also not to offend. So we need to be very, very careful that we're not hurting someone else's feelings, and we need to be very careful that we don't let ours get hurt by others. Is that person your servant? Whoever it is? No. They're God's servant. Now, what right do I have or you have to come up against God's servants? We don't have a right to do that. I've heard people in business get very, very upset when, let's say, a superintendent would come around and correct a crew who had a foreman. Why? Because the foreman had been put in charge of that crew. And he, they are supposed to be taking their instructions from him. Now, if the superintendent comes in and starts chewing the crew out or telling them what to do, he's taking the foreman's job away from him. Now, what's the correct procedure? The superintendent, if he sees something he doesn't like, should go to the foreman and explain to him how things aren't getting done the way he wants them done. Then the foreman goes to the crew and tells them what to do. It's set up that way so you don't bypass someone. Well, God's in charge, and each of us are his servants. And we need to be very careful not to be presumptuous and try to straighten out God's servants when that's his job to do. Now, there's an exception to that, because God has set up under himself, who is the CEO, superintendents, he has set up foremen, he has set up in short, apostles, evangelists, prophets, pastors and teachers and elders to help manage his church, his people. So he put those offices there, and they've been there from all the way back in man's history. Uh, you could talk about Abraham or Moses or, or bring it on down through the New Testament and the pastors and, and the apostles that he put there in charge and said that that would remain and that uh, there were to be others that they would ordain uh, that would carry the message on. So God has a system set up, and if those that he has put in charge, at whatever level they are on, uh, see something wrong with you and me and the church, then they have a right given by God to correct that. So what I'm saying here that Paul is com coming across with is that we as individuals need to be very, very careful in how we fellowship with one another and not retain each other's sins.
Now, he does give the ministry at times the right to either retain or to forgive something. In other words, let's say somebody is doing something and they're unrepentant, they're going to continue doing it, then that the ministry involved has the right to say, your sin is retained. You are disfellowshipped. You cannot be part of the flock because you were causing frustration, division, and sin in the flock. Or if that person is saying, you know, you're right, I'm wrong, I quit doing that, I'm sorry, then you don't retain that infraction. And that's the way it was there in 1 Corinthians, where the man was having an incestuous relationship, apparently, and he was proud of it, and so was the whole church. So Paul came down on it, retained that sin, that infraction, and said, that man is out, and you're not to have any fellowship with him. Then when the man did repent, Paul said, forget it, forgive it, move on. Now be friends with him, now sit down and eat with him. Then they had such a bad attitude, they didn't want to do that. (laughs) We go from one ditch to the other, it seems. So there is a time when management is needed within the church, but in our management of our lives individually, we need to be sure that we're not uh, holding people's sins, problems over people's heads when they are working at trying to overcome them and change them. Now, if they are doing something that is wrong and you see it and uh, then you have a certain right as a brother to go to them and say, hey, uh, that's not right. Don't do that. Uh, and I'll pray for you. But we need to be very careful about holding grudges because the blood of Christ is there to cleanse us from all sin. So if somebody's repented of something, you shouldn't be talking about it. You shouldn't be retaining it. You certainly shouldn't be suing them over it. Uh, how far we go sometimes away from the love of God. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Well, I think we all understand that we all sin and all come short of the glory of God. Now, I don't think we intend to sin uh, because you're getting very close to an unpardonable circumstance when you sin willfully and just say, well, I'm not going to repent. I like this, and I'm going to keep doing it. That's, a, that's an attitude that is very, very hard to get past. Uh, so it's not talking about that. If we have sins, we have things we're working on, we need to recognize that and be diligently working on it, not saying, hey, I'm clean, I'm, I don't have any sin. Because we all do, and we shouldn't deceive ourselves about that. Be honest with ourselves. There are certain sins that people might have that they really like, and they would like to retain. They don't want to quit it. They don't want to get over it. Uh, Then you're getting a position where you are deceiving yourself and hiding your sin, not only from yourself, but you think from God, but you can't do that because you can't hide anything from Him. You might hide it from others fairly well. You might hide it from yourself pretty well as well. But you can't hide it from God. So he says in verse 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just 
to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So John is saying to us, if you will confess your sins to God, He's faithful and will forgive us and clean us from the unrighteousness that we have committed. That we can be clean and pure in His sight. Well, if somebody does that and they go to God and God does forgive them of whatever sin it was that they committed, uh, are we more righteous than God? Do we have better judgment than God? If He forgives it, who are we to hold it? Uh, That's scary to do that. Because He might come to us and say, Hey, you're expecting me to forgive you and you won't forgive so-and-so? Forget it. I don't know you. He makes that very plain. Verse 10, If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. We better be very, very acutely aware that sin dwells in our members. That uh, a human being, by nature, does the works of the flesh, not the fruit of the Spirit. So let's not kid ourselves. Chapter 2, My Little Children. Now, he puts himself here uh, as an older person, and when John wrote this, he was probably in his 90s. So, uh, we're to call no man father, uh, it says in a place or two, uh, or rabbi, or rabboni, is the way it is translated from the Greek. Uh, We have only one father, that is very clear, our father in heaven. On the other hand, we have types of that here on the earth, whereby we have physical children, and we're called the father. And the Bible even refers to a father-son or father-child relationship in Scripture. So, obviously, if we father a child, we are its father, and that is our child, boy or girl. So there is a father-son relationship, father-child relationship in Scripture for human beings. And Paul personifies himself here as a father role over younger people in the church, whether they are young uh, physically or whether they're just young in the truth uh, is neither here nor there because some of these may have been new converts, so they might have been 60 or 70 years of age. We don't know. Uh, But it is not blasphemy for John to look upon them as his children in the faith, since he's an older man and had been in the truth at this point probably close to 60 years. So that is not a contradiction of Scripture. Herbert Armstrong used to sometimes refer to us as, you're my children in the faith, putting him, personifying himself as a father. Now, he wasn't personifying himself as a spiritual father like the Pope does. That's a totally different matter where they look to him and he's in the place of Christ, the vicar of Christ, uh, is the position the Pope puts himself in. That's not talking about that. It's talking here about a very simple personification. And we do not call each other 
master or rabbi. On the other hand, there are titles in the Bible that we are to use. Uh, Paul spoke of himself as an apostle. So we can use those titles. Uh, Timothy was an evangelist. They had elders. So uh, is that equivalent in some respects to, let's say, a Jewish rabbi or a Catholic priest? Well, it is in a way, uh, because God instituted those offices. But you're not to look at them in place of God, or like they are God, or in God's place. That designation is only for the Father and the Son. The rest have physical offices, and it can even be a personification as father and children, as John uses here. And he's not going against Christ's teachings when he does this. Obviously, because Christ put it in the Bible. So he says, My little children, these things write I to you, that you sin not. But he's saying, the purpose for me writing these words is to help keep you from sinning. He's putting himself in a teaching, ministerial position here. Well, I say he's putting himself. Christ put him in that position. But he's saying before them uh, that this is what I'm doing. So he's writing to help keep them from sinning. Why am I sitting here reading this to you? You can read it. You could have stayed home and you could have read this chapter today in the comfort of your own home without me sitting here reading and expounding and talking about it, couldn't you? Could they not have considered the words of God? Maybe they didn't have a copy of the Bible at that point, but they could have gone to the temple or somewhere and read the copy that was there. No, Paul is saying, you need someone to remind you. You need someone to tell you when and what sin is and what not to do. I'm writing this to help prevent you from sinning. Isn't that what I'm doing? Expounding it, explaining it, going over it, reminding you of it to help you and me not to sin and to love each other, to serve each other. That's the purpose of this service today. And it's a righteous, holy purpose. So, I'm writing that you sin not, and if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Emmanuel the Christ, the righteous. So he says, I'm writing to you to help keep you from sinning, but if you do, (laughs) which we will and have, uh, and will again, we do have an advocate with the Father, Emmanuel the Christ, who gave his life for us, and he was righteous, he never sinned. So we have someone to represent us who has never sinned. You can't get any better than that. Uh, He says even of high priests, God had the office of high priest on the earth. Uh, Aaron held that position. Others held it through time. And at the end time, he says, there will be a high priest as well. And he says that human high priests have to go before God and have their sins forgiven before they can represent the people. There's only one ultimate high priest who never sinned, and that is Christ. And every high priest of men who, is, who are types of Christ will not have reached or attained the level that Christ had. They will have to ask forgiveness for their sin before they can then ask God to forgive and help 
others. So Christ is the only one that is, that has ever been, who was wholly righteous and therefore can be an advocate with the Father for all people ultimately. He is the propitiation for our sins. That is, through him, uh, propitiation or forgiveness, expunging, removal is what the word means. He is the one that can remove our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So, he's an advocate for every human being who ever lives on the earth. They're not all being called now, but through the plan of God that we understand through the festivals, everyone will have a chance to have his or her sins forgiven through the blood of Christ. The whole world. Now, there may be a few who don't accept it. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You you can't say, I accept the blood of Christ, and then don't do what he says. If we continue in sin, his blood will not continue to cover us, and we will go into the lake of fire. So we're supposed to be overcoming, and that, that's the whole point of Revelation 2 and 3. Is each and every one of us overcome our sins and our nature. And then we can be part of the kingdom of God. So, for those who are willing to repent, he is a propitiation, and most people will. All Israel shall be saved, Romans 11.26. So, most people will. Now, he says that he's the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. Now, he explains. Let's read on. Hereby, we do know that we know him. How do you know if you know God? Very important question. Methodists, Baptists, Catholics, the whole of Christianity, for the most part, do not know God. Now, how can I prove that? Just read the rest of the verse. It's that simple. Hereby we do know that we know Him if we keep his commandments. If you don't keep his commandments, you don't know God. It's that simple. Now, it isn't good enough just to know his commandments. You have to know them and keep them. Then you know that you know God. All right, then the next question for us, because you and I accept the fact that we know his commandments and that we're supposed to keep them. Okay? The only question remaining for you and me is how well do we know God? How well do we know Him? Because the better you keep His commandments, the more faithful to them you are, the better you know Him, and the more accepting He is of you. The more you keep His commandments, the more likely you're to receive the unmerited pardon or the grace of God. So when they say it's grace only and no commandments, they don't know God. They're, they're worshiping a false God. Do we have to boil that down right out to stark reality? The Methodists, the Baptists, the Catholics, the Christian scientists, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons are worshiping Satan. That's a fact. They're worshiping Satan and don't know it. 
Now the Pharisees thought they were worshiping the Father in heaven, thought they were worshiping God, and Christ said, you don't know him. You are worshiping your father, the devil. The Jews, the Pharisees of Christ's day, the ones who were running the temple, the one in charge of religion in Christ's day, were worshiping Satan and didn't know it. And you know what? They still are. I didn't name the Jews, did I? Judaism is Satan worship. Now, how many people in God's church, when the church began to fall apart, and even before, began to look to the Jews for authority? Began to look to the Jews for some of their customs and their traditions? A lot of them started doing their dances and singing their music and all kinds of stuff to be more like the Jews. That's happened in your life and mine with people who supposedly know the true God, and they went into, at least to some degree, Judaism. Almost the whole church accepted the Jewish calendar, which didn't come from God. It came from Hillel in the 300s A.D. The Hebrew calendar they're following today did not even exist in the days of Christ. Period. It wasn't whispered in Moses' ear. It was written in the heavens. Following the Hebrew calendar today is Satanism. Now, can I make it any more clear than that? Now, John, in all his love, made it that clear. We know we know him if we keep his commandments. Now, let's go to verse 4. If that isn't plain enough. He that says, I know him. Doesn't Christianity say they know him? Yeah, they do. You've got to know the Lord, they say. Do you know the Lord? Yeah, they say that all the time. And keeps not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. When you say the commandments are done away... They are not in existence. We don't have to keep the commandments because we're living under grace. You are a liar, and you don't know the truth. John's making it pretty clear here that whoever's teaching against the commandments of God doesn't know God and doesn't have the truth. Were there people all the way back then who were teaching the commandments were done away and you don't need to keep them? Must have been. He certainly addressed it. And it's just as true today as it was then. It doesn't matter what branch of Christianity or Judaism you're in. If you believe the commandments are done away, you're a liar and the truth is it in you. You don't know God. That makes it very clear. You do not know God. That's how Christ could make that very powerful statement to the leaders of Judaism in his day. Now, do the Jews keep the commandments of God any better than they did then? No. They got their own traditions. Now, they knew the commandments, didn't they, in Christ's day? Yeah, they knew what they were. And they gave lip service to them. So they didn't say the commandments are done away, actually, as far as I know. They just didn't keep them. 
Now, either way, whether you say they're done away or you say they're still in effect but don't keep them, you still don't know God. And you're a liar and the truth isn't in you. So all Protestantism has done is take it one further step into Satanism than the Jews had. They believed the commandments were there, they just didn't keep them. Now the Protestants say, not only aren't they there, we don't have to keep them. So they're just a little deeper into Satanism, perhaps, than the Jews were. But Satanism is Satanism. <laughs> it doesn't matter in that sense how deep you are in it. We need to be keeping God's commandments. Now, this is a book about love. But I, John is saying some pretty powerful stuff here, and I'm saying it in a pretty powerful way. I'm, I'm telling you what the man's talking about. Verse 5, But whoso keeps his word, in him truly is the love of God perfected. So then he goes on to say, the keeping the commandments, because that's the subject here, equals the love of God. Now I'll get a little ahead of the story here, if you want to go to 1 John 5, 3. He tells you very clearly what the love of God is. He defines it. Let's, let's flip back there. 1 John 5, verse 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not grievous. Why do people hate them so much? I read an article some time back, somebody that says, we've got to get as far from the law as we can. The law is an evil, dirty, nasty thing. It's negative. We've got to get away from the law. Have they read First John 5, 3? You don't love God unless you keep His commandments because love and commandment keeping are synonymous. They're the same thing. Can you say you love somebody if you kill him? <laughs> no, one of the laws is don't kill somebody. That's showing love. Do you steal from him? No, not stealing from him, showing love. All of them are that way. People use those arguments sometimes. People say, hey, the law's done away with. When somebody, somebody pull that on someone, he says, okay, I think I'll just kill you. Well, no, you can't do that. Well, why can't I? The law's done away. There's no law. I can shoot you. I'm taking your wife out tonight. <laughs> you know, there's no law. What's your problem, buddy? We're under grace. I can do anything I want. When it comes right down to it, they know better, don't they? When you take those, where do they run into a problem? When you say you ought to keep the Sabbath. That's the test commandment. Why is it a test commandment? Because that's the one that they just simply will not accept. Most of them. Anyway, let's not get onto that too far, but the, the thing is here, we have to keep the commandments of God. And not only know them, but keep them. Then we know that we know Him. So what do we have to do? 
when our body, our mind, our senses tell us to do this, and we say, no body, mind, and senses, and emotions, you can't go there. Don't go there. That's breaking God's commandment. And if you resist, uh, you get stronger, and you build character. If you give in, you get weaker, and it's easy to sin again after you've sinned. It's like Marla's said a few times about when they changed the Sabbath from sundown to sundown to six to six up in Alaska, like the Jews do. They don't keep the Sabbath either, do they? No, they started early and ended early. The Jews don't even keep the Sabbath. But they made an announcement that we were to keep it from six to six from then on in Alaska. It was a trial balloon to do it everywhere, and then they just switched to Sunday after Herbert Armstrong died pretty quickly. But they were walking on the Sabbath. And a few weeks later, the pastor that was in charge up there came down where we lived, and he gave a sermon. He says, well, it kind of bothered me at first to, to keep it from 6 to 6, but he said, after a little while you get used to it. Isn't that the way, it, the way it is with sin? If you give in, it's easier the next time. And if you give in again, it's even easier the next time. You kind of get used to it. That's why when we sin and we don't repent, it gets easier to sin and harder not to sin. So we've got to get tough with ourselves. Whoso keeps his word, in him truly is the love of God perfected. So obedience to God, his instructions, his laws, his judgments, equals the love of God. Perfection in love is perfection in obedience. Hereby know we that we are in him. We know we know him, and we know we are in him, under his protection, under his care, and with him. Verse 6, he that says he abides in him, ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. Well, how did Christ walk? He walked without sin. He never sinned. And we're to walk that way. We're to be overcoming sin, stopping sin, whenever we recognize it. Sometimes sin can come on us so fast we've done it before we even know it. Then we have to say, ooh, and try to stop that the next time. But does he hold it over our head? No, he doesn't. He's faithful to forgive. If we confess and forsake our sin, he's faithful to forgive. And let's be that way with one another too. Verse 7, Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard from the beginning. It says, I'm not really bringing you anything new. Do I bring you anything new? No, not really. I sometimes bring you things that I've found in the Bible or somebody else has found and showed me that are new to you and new to me, but they're not new. They've been in here the whole time. We just didn't see it, didn't recognize it. So he says, I'm not bringing anything new. This is the old commandment you've had from the beginning. But there's the law of God. It's always been there from Adam and Eve on down. Why did uh, Cain get in trouble for killing Abel? 
because the law of God was in existence. It was illegal to kill your brother. The law was there from the very beginning. Adam and Eve knew about the Sabbath. They knew they weren't to worship a false god. They broke the first commandment immediately. Put another god ahead of God. So mankind began Satan worship immediately. That's kind of a nasty word, isn't it? Satan worship. But hey, it's the truth. It's the truth. If you're not worshiping God and doing the things that he says, you're doing the things Satan says, and that is worship. You're putting Satan ahead of God. So he says, again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past and true light now shines. So what did Christ do? He had a world in darkness who did not know God, and he came and he walked a perfect walk, lived a perfect life, and in him was no darkness. In him was perfect light. So this was something new, wasn't it? Having someone walk perfectly within the statutes and the laws of God, within God's will. That's the only thing that was new, was doing it. And nobody had until that point. And nobody has perfectly since. So here's the new commandment. I write to you. Which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past and the true light now shines. Christ shines before us as the premier and only example of perfection. He that says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness even till now. Hatred is darkness. Hatred is Satanism. Anyone who hates his brother worships Satan and doesn't even know it. Do we grasp that? If you carry hatred, animosity, anger against anyone, your brother, you're worshiping Satan. Satan is full of hate, bitterness, anger, accusation, and all those emotions. And if you have those emotions, you're of your father, the devil. He's making it very plain here. Christ doesn't hate anyone. He doesn't hold anything against anybody. He's very willing to forgive, forget, and move on. That's Christ's attitude. He has perfect light. He knows what to do, and he tells us to be like he is. So the commandments are the same. They're old. They've been around the whole time. What's new is somebody who doesn't break them and forgives those who do. That's the light that Christ brought to the world. So he that says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. He that loves his brother abides in the light and there's none occasion of stumbling in him. If you love your brother, you're walking in light, and you're not going to cause your brother to stumble, and you yourself will not stumble because of the wrong attitudes that you have toward others. This is powerful stuff. This is what it's all about. 
John didn't fool around. He got right down to the very core of what God and Christ and we need to be doing together, fellowshipping together. Our fellowship is truly with the Father and the Son, and as an adjunct to that, it is with each other. And we are to have our brothers and sisters in Christ in the same loving relationship that we have with the Father and the Son. And he says, if you don't, then you don't have a relationship with the Father and the Son, and he doesn't know you. Now, this book is known as love by even the world. But they don't understand. They don't have a clue what John is talking about. Now, I think we do. And we'd better walk in the light. That's what he's instructing us to do. Well, I'm out of time, so let's stop right there. And that's a good place to stop because he's defined some things very clearly for us and what our attitude should be.